0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Don't Check Your 401k edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. I did check my 401k yesterday, but yes. I hadn't checked so it in like sorry. I hadn't checked it in like a year and a half, so it was definitely up.
0: Okay, so ignorance is of, bliss. A friend of mine pointed out that what all this means is that stocks are on sale.
1: Stocks are on sale. <laughs> this is what you should invest now. Yes, exactly. Yes, what 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 people call a correction is also called a buying opportunity. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> One person's misfortune is another's gain. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, that. This uh, the. Well, actually, we we could say they slump in the Dow, but as we talk on Tuesday morning, um, U.S. stocks have rebounded 300 points. So uh, I'll be talking about uh, this global economic correction-slash-crisis-slash-panic with, as always, my good friends. Uh, Mark Kaufman-Wittis and Ben-Wittis. Hello, guys. Hi. Hello. Um, that is actually going to be our first up on the wordplay today. Uh, could China's economic freefall affect U.S. national security? We're going to chew that over. Um, also, what does international law have to say about Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And the Secret Service gets upset when a drone flies near President Obama while he's playing golf. Plus, in object lessons, countering violent extremism with barbecue. Who knew? You knew, and you're about to find out. Um, okay, but getting back to this sort of so the economic fruitful issue. So for anybody who hasn't been, you know, paying attention, uh, which is going to be no one among our readers, obviously, or our listeners, um, uh, massive stock slump in China, uh, government devaluing of its currency, um, setting off sort of a global panic that led to a major drop in U.S. stock markets and European markets as well. But now, this morning, things are kind of bouncing back, except in Japan. And but, in China. And in China. Another 7% loss today in China. Well, they're bouncing down. They're bouncing back everywhere else. They keep going down in China. Yeah, China is sort of you know continuing a downward spiral. Um, and we can sort of talk about some of the... Uh, Know, maybe the precipitating factors of that. Uh, but we're national security experts here about to chime in on economic policy. Uh, and what struck me, and I'd love to know what you guys are making of this whole event too, but on the, a number of particular questions, one of which, uh, you know, Chinese President Xi Jinping is coming for a big, much anticipated visit in September. Um, is the White House happy that he is coming here while he's on the ropes? How does that help us vis-à-vis all kinds of other negotiating positions, or does that not really matter so much? And then a related question I had, too, was now that the Chinese economy is slumping dramatically in this way, does it give them more of an incentive to hack U.S. companies and steal trade secrets and conduct economic espionage um, against the U.S.? But why don't we start with the whole notion of you know, the Chinese president comes to town in a moment of crisis, presuming he is still going to come, and tomorrow, what do you, what do you think? I mean, diplomatically, foreign policy, what is it, how does that change the backdrop for these talks, if at all?
0: Well, look, it's a little bit tricky, um, because on the one hand, uh, the United States might feel that it has a little more leverage, at least, um, in terms of positions going into the talks. Uh, world leaders sit together on the assumption that each of them is managing their own stuff. Um, and they rely on one another to manage their own stuff. And so if there's evidence the leader isn't doing that, it gives the other side a little more space to say, hey, you know, we have some concerns about the way you do business. Um, but I think the the real challenge for the administration, and frankly for the Chinese in these talks, is that everything that's happened with the Chinese economy and global stock markets over the last few weeks um, reminds us of how interdependent we are. Um, Donald
1: Trump's been reminding us of that, too, lately.
0: Well, and precisely. So, you know, the Republican candidates are having a field day um, blaming the Chinese stock market crash on President Obama. What they're really upset about is the fact of globalization. Right,
1: right, Um, which is shocking that they would be... Seemingly upset by that.
0: Well, Donald Trump, in particular, (laughs) (laughs)
1: perhaps doesn't he have like casinos in Macau or something? Or like, I mean, a proper. That's Sheldon Adelson. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Um,
0: So you know, it's a chance for Obama to show America's strength relative to the country that's often named as its main competitor internationally as a success story. China isn't looking so much like a success story right now. Um, on the other hand, um, that interdependence is something none of us can get away from. Democrats often like to run by saying globalization can be good for us because we can lead it. Um, and I think this is one of those times where we don't necessarily have control over it.
2: hmm
1: hmm
2: So I don't think the... I, I think there's everything that, that Tamara just said is right, but I think the big flashpoint danger here is probably not, as you suggested, an increased cyber espionage i think the chinese have enough incentive to do that anyway right. uh, i think the big danger is uh for in the south china sea mm. you know where you know countries have a long history of uh detracting attention from economic crises or downturns uh, through nationalist sort of chest thumping exercises. And the Chinese are rather good at that these days and they spend a fair bit of time doing it. And I could really see, you know, something happening in the South China Sea by way of, you know, turning some of this energy that's now being directed toward economic anxiety into sort of nationalist, uh, you know, fervor and, you know, provoking a confrontation with Vietnam or the Philippines or Japan or... Or, or the unpredictable
0: us. effect of the current tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Right. You know, which I don't think the Chinese necessarily instigated, but they're certainly um, having to deal with, as is the
1: United States. Right. It, I mean, seems, uh, I was gonna say, it seems to me, too, like, and we can... Like, that that anxiety, that concern seems valid, given who is the president in China right now and given the government's you know tendency towards more central control more sort of nationalism or maybe a new kind of breed of nationalism and anti-corruption i mean i wonder to what extent this might fuel the chinese president to say um you know are our, our these e- looser economic policies that we've had and this corruption is endemic that's somehow leading to this overvaluation and that's somehow eroding confidence in the economy i mean i don't know if he could spin it in that way to say that this is the result of some kind of you know corrupt you know, business environment, but I, I, you know, I'm sort of just speculating there. But it seems like this is a president who would try and play this to his advantage, since he seems to try to play everything else to his advantage, which doesn't make him all that different than most presidents. But this one in particular has been, she has been very, you know, inclined towards centralizing control. It seems.
0: Well, and and to a certain extent, necessarily. I remember um, being at a conference with. Uh, uh, a really great China expert, a couple of years ago, and he was making the point that the Chinese economy in many ways was like a speeding car hurtling toward a sharp turn. And the question was whether the Chinese government was going to be able to manage that turn or whether the car was going to slam into a wall. Um, and I, this increased control, um, or rather increased activity and efforts to manage the economy, I think is exactly about that. Um, but it's, it shows to me, you know, what's going on right now, the attempt to manage a currency devaluation that did slip out of their control. Um, and now attempts at state intervention to prop up the markets. You know, this is showing the limits of a managed capitalist economy and, and the real vulnerabilities of that kind of model, which frankly I think is a good thing. Um, for the world and for countries that are looking at at the Chinese model as you know potentially one that they might want to adopt, even with all the all of the information control, all of the levers of influence um, that the Chinese government and the Communist Party have, they can't manage this. It's too complex in a global economy.
1: So do you think, like when President Obama and President Xi are, you know? <clears throat> sitting around after dinner and they're, you know, privately, you know, they're drinking their cognac or whatever they're doing, but like Obama, I mean, does he sort of give him a shoulder to cry on? Does he lecture him? Or is it some, I mean, at some level did the Chinese just look at this and say, don't even pretend to, you know, gloat or try and instruct us on how to run an economy?
2: Uh,
0: I would guess more the latter, but privately, I'm sure President Obama is thinking that as long as the Chinese economy doesn't crash completely, this is good for the US. because
1: we creates... don't want their economy to crash.
0: <laughs> we don't want their economy to crash because it would lead to a, a broader global recession just as we're you know recovering but in the short term it creates more of a market for US debt um, it makes Chinese goods cheaper for American consumers <laughs> you know it's there are a lot of good things about it as yeah. long as it doesn't go too far
2: Well and, and it also, Weakens a power that's rising and challenging us in a number of respects. I mean, just in a sort of great game kind of way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, something, something that weakens China that does not have a lot of contagion to American stuff is, is good for us. Yeah. Um, now, whether it's good for us in the long run is, is a, is a very different question, but I think certainly in the short run, you know, having You know, having your major competitor rocked back on its heels is 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 not a bad thing for the United States.
1: Yeah, and and just as a a sort of final, last point on this, you know, we've been prepping. It seems to me we, the administration, has been sort of prepping for this visit by Xi. You know, with you know some selective, you know, very pointed leaks of information about things that are concerning us. There's the whole issue of the OPM hack. There have been very clearly deliberate leaks of information about Chinese law enforcement agents in the United States harassing and trying to deport dissidents who are here. Um, I would think that if your strategy was sort of to kind of like, you know, stir the waters a bit and kind of get some grievances out on the table before that visit occurred as sort of a way of kind of putting them off balance a little bit, this is great timing for us <laughs> yeah, we had to have an economic crisis.
2: Yeah, and and look, to show, you know, just to show the Chinese that they are not uh, always in the driver's seat in their international relations as a result of what they call the peaceful rise is, you know, changes the, I'm sure, changes the tenor of those negotiations and discussions.
1: The peaceful rise and fall. Okay, stay tuned. Um, Ben, let's move on to your wordplay. International law? Does it have something to say about Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Remember that invasion that happened? Yeah, so... Remember
0: uh, the international law thing? Is that relevant? Well, so I... I, um, Sorry.
2: Yesterday found myself editing and publishing a piece by a gentleman named T.D. Grant, Thomas Grant, um, who um, uh, is a uh, scholar, he's based in Britain, uh, who has written a book about international law and Russia and Ukraine, Uh, the basic thesis of which, uh, as summarized in this uh, article he wrote for Lawfare, is that uh, Russia's intervention in Ukraine constitutes the single biggest assault on the system of international law. In the history of the modern state system post World War II. And the basic proposition is that this is really the first time, even including Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, uh, that a, ter- that a country has invaded the territory of, and acquired, annexed the territory of another country whose borders it recognized. Mm. Um, that, you know, what, what Grant argues is that even Iraq had, had made public its rejection of Kuwait's, uh, borders and even its statehood. It had a claim, it, it had made a claim, one that nobody accepted. But Russia didn't even do that. It accepted the legitimacy of Ukraine's borders and sovereignty and then went and acquired, you know, Crimea and now, you know, hasn't annexed, but, uh, but has occupied Uh, eastern Ukraine as well. And that according to Grant, there is no analog in post-World War II life for that. Um, And so my question is, and that this constitutes a very, very great challenge to the premises of the international system, one which neither the media nor public rhetoric has really acknowledged. And so my question is, is that right or is that Kind of overheated
1: anti-Russian rhetoric, or both. You know, I like that argument because <clears throat> when, the, when the after the invasion occurred, and, and there was this sort of second, second kind of you know wave of the um, you know, occupation in eastern Ukraine, and then of course there was the downing of the Malaysian airliner, and there were moments there where I think people in national security circles were getting very concerned about whether or not Russia was going to you know invade another country or send troops into a nato member country. And I remember thinking and asking the question, if that occurs and there is not a response from nato immediately, does nato cease to exist at that moment? Does the alliance that has held europe together and formed this transatlantic, you know, power structure just evaporate because it didn't do what it was supposed to do in challenging this, you know, these clearly what would have to be viewed as illegal acts of aggression? Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I think that it's it's something we haven't dealt with a lot, and, and and no one seems to be really. Well, I shouldn't say no one's asking the question. If you listen to General Breedlove, who is the European commander, I would Supreme say John McCain is
0: asking this. Question.
1: <laughs> John McCain is asking that question. That's true. I mean, but I like this argument. Yeah, it's true sure. You know
0: what? It's it might be it might be a correct argument as far as international law goes, and so the question, as you just posed it, Shane, is why aren't people talking about this more? And I think it's. It, Answering that suggests that, you know, realist theorists of international relations are are more correct, at least this case suggests that, than those who would argue that, for example, NATO um, strengthened norms, you know, strengthened international norms in favor of state sovereignty and against the acquisition of territory by force. Well, no, at the end of the day, NATO is alliant, an alliance to protect the states that are members of NATO, And guess what? Ukraine's not a member of NATO, and the NATO members in the face of this crisis decided they didn't want to make it one because they didn't want to take on the hard responsibility of defending Ukraine's sovereignty. And so NATO isn't operating as anything more than a a realist alliance of mutual defense for its members. It doesn't have any broader normative effect that sticks. Mm. And that, I think, is an important challenge to... Those who would argue that, you know, these norms somehow, um, over time get, you know, get, become more, uh, influential on state behavior. The other thing that I think it's, it's worth thinking about just in terms of the broader public or political understanding of what's happened in Ukraine is that it might be in the U.S. or in Europe, in Western Europe, that Ukraine is somehow subconsciously still seen as part of the Russian sphere of influence, it became independent not that long ago in the scheme of international politics. And so, you know, whatever its earlier history may be, it was part of the Soviet Union. And so, you know, in, at some subconscious level, maybe Western publics um, are okay with the idea that Russia still gets to have that kind of role in Ukraine.
2: But presumably not about the Baltics, right? The Baltic states, which are NATO members and which we somehow feel differently about because they were, you know, annexed illegally by the Soviet Union well, post War II. and not only that,
0: but at least here in the United States, um, commitment to the Baltic states has not only to do with that history, but with the impact of diaspora politics in the U.S. You know, members of Congress who have um, Baltic state diasporas in their... In their the, the great uh,
2: Latvian lobby...
0: <laughs> no, in, in some members' districts, including, you know, one Michigan congressman for whom I worked, uh, this was really important. And, you know, the, the uh, U.S. non-recognition of the usurpation of the Baltic states was about geopolitics, but it was also about domestic politics.
2: So my question is, is this does it matter i mean so grant argues this in the language of international law and the you know the sort of almost the spiritual value of the state system under the un charter uh and you know sounds a lot to me like uh you know palestinians who you know argue who argue about you know, occupation not in the language of, you know, what a right or equitable answer or what a negotiable solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict would look like, but in the language of, you know, some sort of strict interpretation of relevant UN resolutions are. And my question is, is he just as unrealistic as those Palestinians or is there something different about it when you're talking about bit different in either direction when you're talking about big states confronting one another um and y- you know the biggest rule of them all at issue
0: well, I, I mean, number one, there's a difference between a normative argument, which is what the Palestinians are making, and an analytical argument, which is what he's making.
2: Um, well, no, he's making a pretty strong argument. Nor- nor- I mean, his argument is, is if you do not do something about Russia's aggression against Ukraine, the state system will fall apart.
0: Okay, but that that is the argument of somebody who believes that international norms matter. That's... It, going back to what I said earlier about realists versus liberal conceptions of, of world politics here, a realist would respond to him by saying, no, actually, those international norms have never really mattered. What matters is power. And if you put power behind the protection of norms, then the norms matter. Um, so no, the international system won't fall apart, um, because the norm of state sovereignty was only ever something that was enforced by states that could enforce it.
1: Well, is that maybe even, are we we asking the question in the wrong way? I mean, so if we're talking about sort of the the normative aspects of it, what about just the sheer, you know, real politics of this, which is that we stood by while Russia annexed, you know, another country and fired off missiles that downed a passenger jet that killed 300 people? I mean, just just the sheer disruptive brutality of that just seems to me like something that, in and of itself, should be something we should have responded to much more forcefully than we actually did. I mean, I happen to also think that it does weaken the credibility of international power structures and agreements and that it probably was illegal. But there's just a base, you know, frankly, right and wrong. And what the hell are we letting this guy do?
0: Well, and look, you can make the realist argument for having a stronger response to, to what happened in Ukraine also. And I think that's the argument you just made, which is that, you know, norms aside, Um, It weakens the United States, it weakens the deterrent power of that Western alliance not to respond in the face of such an egregious violation of a norm that, hey, we stand up for because it's good for us. We don't want that norm to get undermined, you know, even if the only reason it exists is because, if the only reason it exists is because we enforce it, if we fail to enforce it, that's not good for us. So, yes, <laughs> I think whether you're looking at it through a norm, you know, an international norms lens or a realist lens, um, the United States does not come off well in terms of its response to this crisis. But I think you know, what's really striking here is the, Europe, the weakness of the European response. They seem to have the most at stake, whether you look at it normatively or in power terms. And they're the ones who acquiesce to this.
2: At any rate I commend uh this article some people will disagree with it on a number of grounds some people will find it very compelling uh but Thomas Grant's article in Lawfare Russia's Invasion of Ukraine What Does International Law Have to Say uh is uh, worth worth a few minutes of
1: your time All right All right tomorrow let's move on to your wordplay Sure. Your well, airplay. My
0: airplay, my wordplay air word play about playing around in the air. Um, so news broke this week of uh, an incident in which President Obama was playing golf down in Florida, and it turns out that somebody was flying a drone nearby the golf course, and the Secret Service got very upset about this. Can no. Can That there was a drone watching the President play golf, and they called the FAA, and You know, this was... Scrambled fighter jets. Yeah. Not quite that bad, but, you know, we've had that. We've had drones crashing on the White House lawn, uh, wielded by drunken federal employees. (laughs) We've had, you know, fingertip-sized drones that you can stow in your pocket. We have drones delivering medical supplies. We have American companies promising drone-based delivery systems Mm -hmm. for your goods to arrive at your doorstep instantly after you click purchase. And... It just, and this week also, we've had pilots complaining as they're trying to take off and land at local airports that drones are getting in their flight path. Yep. And it just makes me wonder whether this whole domestic drone thing is well beyond the realm of federal control. Are we just, there are too many people out there with too many of these very cheap, easy to deploy devices that they are almost unregulatable at this
1: point. I think that. As of right now, I would say yes, that seems to be the case. In fact, I heard, uh, uh I forget which program it was the other day, but the, um, the FAA administrator was on being asked these very questions about, you know, pilots complaining that, hey, these drones are flying in our way. And we should emphasize, too, even if they're very small drones, If one of those goes into an engine, it's like a bird strike. I mean you could crash a plane.
0: Yeah, Canada Goose, drone,
1: same. Same diff, right? You know, it's you know, and hope that Sully Sullenberger is aboard. Um but yes, I mean I but it seems to me that um uh what was I going with this? Oh the FAA administrator talked about, well, we're looking into things like should we put numbers on them or should we put technology on them? And I thought to myself, wait a minute. Weren't you supposed to have the plan for incorporating these into the airspace in about in right about now September 2015, wasn't it? I think it's December 2015. Or, yeah, but it's like it's, it's this it's year It's coming up yeah. very soon, just
0: in time for the Christmas <laughs> shopping season.
1: Exactly. And frankly, I mean, we've been talking on this show, you know, for for months about you know drones and getting people like Raytheon to send us drones. Raytheon should send us a drone, uh, and buying them on Amazon. And you know, it's Operation Barn Door here. I mean, they're okay. they're out there, and and it seems to me now that, you know, how are you going to practically enforce at the sort of hobbyist level this kind of thing? I mean, I think it's why attention is being drawn to these stories of people shooting down drones that are flying over their backyard, and some states sort of asking the question like, hey, why shouldn't you be able to, if if, if there's an unauthorized aircraft, you know, that's not federally regulated flying over your backyard, why can't you shoot it down? Yeah. I want to point out that both this question of
2: what your rights to shoot down drones are and the specific question of the drone flying too close to the president are both questions that Gabriella Blum and I treat in The Future You of are violence. just Mr. Logroll today. to that. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: and, the, and this was not a plant, I assure you. I would also <laughs> like
2: to point out that Raytheon has entirely fallen down on the job of sponsoring Rational Security, and sending us a drone. Uh, just, uh, but, look, here's the basic problem.
0: And Raytheon, look, we're good at log rolling. Yeah, There's we
2: are. we totally I mean, good uh, at log rolling. You know, <laughs> you guys are missing the ultimate advertising opportunity. I have a beautiful speaking voice Stamps.com, Stamps. you know, <laughs> uh, 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 Casper wall, Mattresses, product com, uh, and Harry's Razors. Patriot Missile. Um, anyway. Here's the basic problem. The basic problem is that we are turning uh, an FAA model, uh, which is a model of very few licensees to fly with very, very strict licensing and regulation um, over very few actors into an interstate highway model where... You know, just about anyone can can get into the skies and fly with very light regulation and an assumption that there are going to be more accidents. Uh, you know, our general rule in the air has been that the proper amount of accidents is zero. Our general rule on the roads has been that the proper amount of accidents is plenty, uh, and you try to keep it to a minimum. And so the question is, can you turn one model into another without changing the expected death and accident rate by, uh, I think the technical term is, a whole boatload. Mm. And I think the answer is probably not. Um, Wow.
0: Well, if that's the world we're entering into where, you know, my neighbor down the street can lend a cup of sugar to Mm. the neighbor around the corner by flying a drone over my house, um, I can tell you I'm going to be building the Laser Air Defense Array. (laughs) Because those of you who follow me on Twitter know already that I can't stand the low-flying helicopters that plague my neighborhood in yeah. Town. And if we live in a world where drones are buzzing around delivering things, I, I think I might start shooting a BB gun off.
2: Well, you're, you're, you, you'll be pleased to know, I forget which town in Idaho, uh, not only legalized shooting down drones, um, but paid a ta- offered to pay a town bounty of $200 for, for every drone that a resident shot down. I, and I like
0: that idea. That's and, really Wild West.
2: And I remember uh, the news article about it, which uh, made me actually laugh out loud. Uh, the reporter asked one of the city councilmen, have you uh, actually had a drone problem in whatever town this was? And he said, no,
1: and we're not going to Nice. <laughs> preemptive yes. security. I in fact, like, it. I
0: but like to, it. I'm moving there now.
1: But just to return to one thing that you said, I mean are you Ben, are you saying that I mean we should we're gonna have to sort of deal with a future in which civilian air casualties are going to be more normal because of drones? People I mean, just
2: dropping out of the sky? Well all the time? so so I, I, I I didn't say that. Okay. I said if you move from a model in which you have lots of very few highly regulated actors to lots of very lightly regulated actors, it's very hard to see how you don't uh, create um, you know, a greater accident rate. Now, one possible solution to that is to not allow a lot of people to fly drones, and particularly not to allow a lot of people to fly drones above a certain weight, above a certain height. Um, You know, what you're gonna do in the lower you know, line of sight stuff, you're probably not going to control that, and you know, you probably can't. And so the question then becomes how do you protect both, you know, ground safety issues and air safety issues? And by the way, there have been ground safety issues. You know, one kid in Brooklyn was killed by his own drone. And I a couple years ago, I posted on Lawfare this incredible video of a drone taking... um video of a rodeo in Virginia and just, apropos of nothing, crashing into the stands into somebody. So there really are ground safety issues as well as air safety issues. And I think for the very low-flying stuff, for, for Tammy's friend, the, the low-flying helicopter, there's not that much the FAA is going to be able to do on that score. You know, it's not currently legal for a lot of people, say, to fly drones over weddings to take pictures of them, but people do it anyway, and, you know, keeping drones out of, small drones out of the lower airspace is
1: not going to be possible.
0: Well, I, I see a major market in the near future for residential air defense.
1: Possibly cyber Uh EMP. The EMP crowd, this is how it begins. This is how,
2: right. this is how it starts. They Are didn't you, quite
1: think it would happen this way. You know, just, Newt Gingrich, if you're listening, this is how it just starts. have a Jim personal, Woolsey a personal
2: <laughs> EMP around your house for drones, and when they go, just <laughs> click it, and down Boom. they will
1: come. That's right. Of course, all your computers will go out, too. But, but the drone won't be there, and the computers can be restarted. That's right. And you'll be proving a point. Uh, we're going to move on to object lesson, and apropos of that, speaking of drones flying over weddings, I was at a wedding well I was at an engagement party uh, this past weekend uh, at a big sort of you know event hall place where there was a wedding going on. And a drone buzzing above us all. And I can only presume there to take photographs of the wedding party and get... Illegally. Dramatic, yeah, illegally, and get dramatic, you know, sweeping views. And um, a lot of people who I was there with, I mean, were like, what the hell is that doing up there? And I said, well, look, there's a wedding. It must be for the photographer. And this drone was really flying up and down and back and forth this sort of big lawn area outside How this incredibly
0: really incredibly disruptive. Beautiful. Who wants that at their party? How
1: loud was it? It was very not very loud at all. You could hear it kind of buzzing and people were looking up. There were other people there at this event, but like the upper level of this building was occupied and then a patio area by the by the wedding party. Um and then they clearly were having the reception they had the ceremony earlier. But what was also astonishing, and this I guess is my object, is what was right next door to this <laughs> wedding party Lower Manhattan,
2: <laughs> you know,
1: lovely. <laughs> so there we were, and that's the Freedom Tower, and it's just right there across the water. And I want to point out that you weren't that far from Newark Airport either. No, and in fact, that's absolutely right. I mean, it was, you know, look. I mean, you're crashing this little drone into a building is not going to do anything. But the point about air disruption, you know, to the point where we've talked about people arming drones with, you know, chemicals or nasty things that you want to drop on people. Well, you know, it just it was here. We were. You know, sitting right next to this, practically right next to this building. And it was, um, yeah, it was a little unnerving. And, uh, but I'm sure the couple got some wonderful video. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, <laughs> that is. Good for them. Good luck, kids. Um, ben, what's your object lesson? So I had two thoughts this week, only two. Uh, one
2: was that uh, Mr. Al-Baghdadi... You're Al-Bag- a Brookings
0: scholar. One thought a week is enough for yeah. you. Yeah,
2: well, this was two. One was that Omar al-Baghdadi needs a new career. Um, you know, he needs a second act after running uh, ISIS. Um,
0: you don't think he'll become an antiquities dealer?
2: Uh, he's apparently already done that. Um, and then the second was prompted by uh, reading a wonderful article in the Daily Beast about oh, I've heard of that about the it's a good publication. Uh, about how brutal and awful the Black Panther Party of self-defense actually was, and you know how we've romanticized it, but that it was actually uh, a, a pretty vicious, murderous organization. And this just hit the match for me, and the bulb lit up, and I f- realized exactly what al-Baghdadi's new career should be. Because sitting on my uh, bookshelf was a book entitled "Barbecuing with Bobby, Righteous Down Home Barbecue Recipes by Bobby Seal. Mm. Bobby Seal, as listeners will know, is the uh one of the two founders of the Black Panther Party. Um and unlike the other one, he's still alive. And he went on in 1988 to write a barbecuing book. And uh, on the back, he has the following quotation. There was a time when 20 million liberals and left radicals across the country were saying, free Bobby Seal.' Now they're grown up and have their own barbecue grills and pits in their backyard. This is an American pastime. I love it. Barbecuing can change a grumpy attitude to a pleasant kind of sereneness. And I wow. thought, who needs a pleasant kind of sereneness more than Mr. al-Baghdadi? Al-Baghdadi. So I'm saying barbecuing with Bobby, free Bobby seal, uh, and uh, bring uh, Mr. al-Baghdadi the pleasant kind of sereneness that a new career in barbecuing will give... The book is real, by the way. It is actually has some excellent recipes, uh, and uh, it is rare and out of print these days because uh, people like me have have scooped them all up over the years. Sounds like there was probably a very narrow market for this book. You know, I'm, can we I'm see some of the to,
0: I'm trying to understand how he <laughs> chose to Who describe his Jackie black panther <laughs> past as a grumpy. grumpy attitude. <laughs> Well, that explains some extremist violence a grumpy attitude. Yeah. countering
1: oh. violent extremism with barbecuing. Yeah. There's, a, there's a salt-free, sugarless, hickory herbal barbecue sauce recipe in here, and low-sodium recipes, too, for those watching their sodium intake.
0: Wow, well, I'm looking forward to Baghdadi's wow. version, which will be halal barbecue. Halal, no, no, halal
1: barbecue. Barbecue al-Baghdadi. Oh, yeah. Hunky, crunchy macaroni salad. Okay, you're not getting this book back. <laughs> it comes <laughs> home with me. Um... Okay, Tamara, what is your object?
0: You know, I, we, we are here at the tail end of August, and even though Labor Day is still a, a little bit too far away, it feels like the end of summer. Um, and so my object is, is not so much an object, but an observation, a lament, if
1: oh, you no, will. A lament, oh yes.
0: if Yes, if you will observe mm-hmm. the final pedicure.
1: Oh, summer. look at that. And that's very nice.
0: You know, it's a very conservative clothing, clothing culture here in Washington. Yeah. And, and actually, when I first went to work at the State Department, I had to ask one of my female colleagues whether it was even okay to wear open-toed shoes there because I thought it might violate some sort Oof. of formal code. Okay. But one of the times that Washington does lighten up is during our miserably hot summers when we all wear open-toed shoes mm-hmm. and we get our, our pedicures so that we look... Sure you know polished in our open toed shoes. So this is my final pedicure of the summer I think and yeah. and uh, a mark of the end of the season. And
1: what a way to go out too because it is a glorious week in Washington. Like we have been actually a fairly all things considered.
0: Not a bad summer. Not a bad I summer agree. and
1: this week is is quite wonderful. Uh, and, and probably a great time to try out some uh, barbecue recipes. <laughs> barbecue and not with Bobby. Your, and not check your 401k. That's right. Well,
0: That's I think right. we know what we're doing this weekend. I
1: think we have a weekend plan. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Of course, you can find links to other show pages at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter. At R-A-T-L Security. When you download the podcast or subscribe from iTunes or any of your favorite podcasting apps, please, please, please leave us a rating uh, and a message. And tell your friends. Tweet about us. Share us on Facebook. Let people know where they can find the podcast, too. Rational Security is edited by Jen Powell. Our music this week was performed by Xi Jinping and the Baghdadi Barbecue Blues Singers. <laughs> oh, Nice. And, <laughs> good one uh, that I would go here I would go to that concert uh, no of course as always our music is performed by Sophia Yan who I'm sure has a few very good barbecue recipes of her own uh, I'm Shane Harris on behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittes and Ben Wittes thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week
0: a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend